Acts chapter 18. Verse 1 says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Paul is on a second missionary journey. And you wouldn't know it from just reading that simple first verse. But by the time Paul comes to Corinth, he's pretty weary. He's disheartened. He's discouraged. Things haven't gone so well in Europe with the gospel. It's been constant problems and persecution from the, from the very beginning. He was viciously beaten in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica, chased out of Berea, comes to Athens, wasn't persecuted there, but wasn't much of a response to the gospel either. And so by the time he comes to Corinth, he's exhausted. Some think he was physically ill, but he was definitely inwardly discouraged and disheartened. And now he stands facing the most wicked, immoral city of the ancient world. Corinth was about as bad as it could get. And I just think that at this point in Paul's life, everything kind of overwhelmed him. I think that everything caught up with him. You ever been in that place where you're just, you're just hanging on, you know? But you're, you feel your grip is slipping, and you're trying your best to hang on, and you come to a place where all of a sudden you realize, I can't go another step. I, I can't go on. I can't go on. I'm discouraged. I'm disheartened. I'm broken. I'm ill. I mean, Lord, I can't, I can't make it. And I think that everything, I think a wave of despair swept over Paul. I just think it all caught up with him. And, and it was just, he, he was just in that place. And, and I think that every Christian alive, well, I think every Christian's ever lived, at some time in their life has been where Paul was at at this point. I think that in all of our lives as Christians, we, we come to a point where we just can't go on. We're weary. We're discouraged, you know. We, we just feel like, like our strength is gone. There's no more fight left in us. And, and we just we're facing, you know, an impossible situation. Like Paul, I think he stood there in Corinth and saw the depth of the depravity and, the, and the, just the, the wild uh, immorality around him, and it just overwhelmed him. It just, I think the, the enormity of the situation, the impossibility of the task confronting him just kind of pushed him over the edge. And I think it happens in our lives at times. I think and the devil waits, too, for when you're pretty weary and beaten up to really attack you. Uh, I think of um, Elijah. Remember how he had this incredible victory over the 850 prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. But it, he was spent. He was exhausted. It took a lot out of him. And Jezebel finds out that Elijah had all of her prophets killed, and so she sends word to him and says, Look, May God do to me and more also if I don't make you like one of them by this time tomorrow. And Elijah takes off. He just runs away. Runs all the way down into the desert and says, God, just kill me. I've had it. I can't go on. And the Lord ministered to him down there. Made him some angel food cake and strength. You know, it was an angel who made him a cake. That's angel food cake. And, 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 and he ate and he was strengthened. He got a good night's sleep. He felt better. Sometimes that's a big, important part. We, we get physically spent. We don't take care of ourselves. We're physically exhausted and run down, and the devil waits for his moment when he sees that we're kind of worn out, kind of weary, you know, and, and physically when you're not feeling well, everything is magnified and, and your discouragement and so on. 
And he waits for those times. He's very patient. And if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't maintain your walk with God the way you should, things start to slowly unravel, and he waits and he waits and he waits for his moment, and then he strikes. And all of a sudden, the despair comes. You're feeling completely helpless and hopeless. Now, if you're a person in the world, often what that means is suicide. And we're just talking to Julie before church and prayer and her community alone over the last year, six people have committed suicide and a number of young people. It's a real problem. Discouragement, depression, those feelings of hopelessness and helplessness can get to us. But God stepped in and encouraged Paul. At the lowest point in his life, God stepped in and encouraged Paul. And the way God did it was to get Paul's eyes off of the situation off of the enormity of the problem, off of the impossibility of the task, and to get his eyes back on God. And that was how God began to lift Paul out of this pit of depression and discouragement. David was in such a pit. And in Psalm 40, he talks about how God had lifted him out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, put his feet firmly on the rock, and put a new song in his heart. Praise to his God. And we have to just keep our eyes on God. Because if you do like Peter did, when he found himself in an impossible situation, he was walking on water. That's pretty impossible. Took his eyes off the Lord, though, looked around and said, Hey, I shouldn't be able to do this. I'm walking on water. Saw the, the size of the waves and the wind, and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And the Lord just reached out and picked him up. And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, why did you doubt? Where's your faith? You're not going to be able to do the impossible apart from me. If you got your eyes on me, you don't have to worry about a thing. I'll bring you through it. And so here, Paul goes from Athens, which was the, the cultural center of the world, a place of, of learning and sophistication. And he comes to Corinth about as wicked, licentious, debased, sin city. Okay, it's, it's as bad as you could get. In fact, it was so bad that the name Corinthian became synonymous with drunkenness and immorality. Whenever the Greeks put on a play, if somebody, a, a performer, staggered across the stage, everyone knew that was a Corinthian. To Corinthianize meant to get involved in prostitution, which had become such a part of their city that the very name of their city, city became synonymous with the act itself. You say, well, why were they so immoral? What happened to this city? Well, Look at your Bible map. You will see that Corinth is in what's known as southern Greece today. It's Achaia, which was the province, which was actually southern Greece. And Corinth was way down at the southernmost part of, of what we call Greece today. But it sat right at the crossroads of the main trade route between north and south and east and west, which meant there was a constant flow of traders and uh, caravans, and business people coming through the city, all hours of the day and night. Also, if you look on your Bible map, you see that Corinth sits on a very narrow isthmus called the Corinthian Isthmus. It was a four-mile stretch of land that connected the two seas on either side. And if you were a ship and wanted to go around the, the bottom of the peninsula, it was a 200-mile trip out of your way. So what they would often do is they would often dock there on one side of the isthmus, this very narrow four-mile stretch of land, 
put the ship, believe it or not, on rollers and roll it across the four miles to the other side. It was quicker, which meant you had a steady trap flow of sailors coming through your city. You know how sailors are. Sorry if one of you gals or guys was a sailor at one time, but you know how that is. Sailors have a reputation. So all these people were coming through Corinth all the time. And they made Corinth, their place to just, you know, just became Sin City. It just became a place to just kind of carry on and just to have a great old time, a big party town. If that all wasn't bad enough, 1,500 feet above the city of Corinth, you had the Acropolis. And on top of the, the Acropolis, you had a massive temple to the goddess Aphrodite, also known as Venus, the goddess of fertility and sexual pleasure. And this particular temple was operated by a thousand priestesses who were nothing more than temple, nothing more than professional prostitutes. And every night they would come down into the city and solicit the men of Corinth. And the money that they earned from their prostitution was used for the function and upkeep of the temple. So you can imagine that as Paul came to Athens, he was grieved in his spirit at a city wholly given over to idolatry. When he got to Corinth, he must have been totally blown away at a city that was totally engrossed in immorality. And I think he just, he just, it just broke him. I just think he was totally at a, at a point where he just couldn't go on really. In fact, years later, as he's reflecting on his mindset uh, at that time and writing to the Corinthians, he's talking now years later about when he came to them. And he said, you remember how I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, he also wrote them from Corinth. And he talked about how he had been in much affliction, much distress. It was tough. Corinth was not an easy town to reach for the Lord. But God said to him, as he encouraged Paul, he said, Paul, take heart. I've got a lot of people in this city. And I'm sure Paul came to Corinth because he realized, if I can plant a church in Corinth where there is so much traffic going everywhere to the known world, the gospel will spread everywhere. If people come to Corinth on their journeys north, south, east, and west, and they receive the gospel, they'll take it everywhere they're going to go. He saw this as a, as a critical hub for the gospel. And so he's in Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Now, as I said, when he got to Corinth, he was just, he was, he was worn out. He was just really at a low point. And it was almost like the Lord said to him, Paul, you need some friends. You need some friends. And so God led to him a couple of friends. In fact, they were a couple, a husband and wife named Aquila and Priscilla. And they became such dear friends to Paul that he, he uh, mentions them over and over again in his epistles. He really loved these two. And it's just wonderful how that God will do that, you know, that when you're at a real low point, he'll send you somebody to encourage you. And, you know, just it's so wonderful to have, you know, we're all family in Christ, as Christians, but it's really special to have a friend who's a brother or sister in Christ, who someone you could talk to, someone you can share with, somebody who will pray with you. And Aquila and Priscilla became dear friends to Paul. In fact, it says in verse 3, so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, uh, worked for them. 
for by occupation they were tent makers. Well, what happened? First of all, they, were, they lived in Rome, and Claudius threw all the Jews out of Rome. So they came down and finally made their way to Corinth, where Paul hooked up with them. Well, what happened? Well, we're not really sure. But uh, Suetonius, who was a Roman historian, Suetonius said that Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because of the constant riots over this person, Crestus. Crestus? Historians are like, who's Crestus? Well, Suetonius was writing 70 years after the fact. And what scholars have figured out is he, he misspelled the word. It wasn't Crestus, it was Christos. The Jews were rioting in Rome because the gospel had come there and the Jews had been evangelizing other Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the unbelieving Jews were rising up and rebelling everywhere the gospel uh, came to Rome in their town or neighborhood. They would rise up in rebellion and, 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 would, and would oppose this. And so finally, uh, Claudius had enough and said, all you Jews out, throw them all out. Well, the believing Jews scattered. And of course, Aquila and Priscilla came down to Corinth. What were they going to do for a living? Well, they applied their trade. They were tent makers. The Greek literally means leather workers. And so was Paul. You see, Paul was a rabbi. And rabbis never charged their students for teaching them. And so a rabbi had to provide for himself. And the way he did it was he learned a trade and he used his trade to support himself. In fact, every Jewish boy was required, expected to learn a trade, no matter what profession he wanted to go into. You want to be a rabbi, that's fine, but you still have to learn a trade. So Paul learned how to make leather tents out of strips of leather and, and sew them together, and that's what he used to make his living. And uh, when things got tight, he always fell back on his trade, and so here he is living now with Aquila and Priscilla, and they're all tent makers, workers of leather, in leather. And so verse 4 says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. He worked all week long, but his passion was ministry. And so on the Sabbath day, he went into the, into the synagogue and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. In other words, Greek proselytes to Judaism or God-fearers, those Greeks who had come to believe in the God of Israel but hadn't gone all the way in becoming official Jews yet. And so every Sabbath, Paul went into the synagogue and persuaded both Jews and Greeks with the gospel. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we learn in the epistles that when Timothy and Silas caught up with Paul in Corinth, they had stayed behind and ministering in the churches where Paul had been. When they came, though, they brought with them a gift, a gift of money from the church of Philippi. Paul mentions their generosity when he writes to them and how he says, I didn't really want anything from you. I didn't expect anything. I receive it because it's going to abound to your account with fruit. So thank you. I've learned to work with my own hands, but how generous you were. It really encouraged my heart. But one thing it did allow Paul to do was to go back full time into the ministry. And so now with even more fervor, he goes and he's preaching now all week long. And it's interesting that, you know, we think of Paul as the great evangelist, and certainly he was. But how great would he be? How great would he have been, I should say, if it wasn't for good friends like Aquila and Priscilla who encouraged him? If it wasn't for fellow workers like Timothy and Silas and Luke 
who also served by his side and allowed him to, to uh, be as successful in ministry as he was. And churches like Philippi that couldn't be on the mission field with Paul, but supported him monetarily and prayerfully. You know, we all are a part of the work of God. Some can go on the mission field, some cannot, but we can all take part in the work. And it's important to understand that. The, Jesus is, is keeping track of everything we do for the work of God, whether it's prayer, whether it's giving of our finances, whether it's encouraging somebody, taking them into our home. Jesus, if you give a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in my name, I will never forget that. You'll get a reward. And so we're all sharing in the work. Don't think, well, what can I do for God right now? I got little kids. I mean, I mean, how can I do anything for God? You can do a lot for God. You can pray. That's the most important thing for the work of God. That's really what accomplishes the work of God. And you can give whatever you can give, but you can partner in the work. Nobody can ever say, I, I couldn't do anything. Certainly, you can do a lot. And so encouragement is one thing that is very important as well. And so verse 6, he was in the synagogues ministering, preaching the gospel. But when they, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. For now, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It was Paul's pattern to always go into a town, hit the synagogue first, because he had a heart for his, his countrymen. But often, you know, especially on this second missionary journey, Philippi and then Thessalonica and Berea and now Corinth, he's being opposed quite a bit by the Jews. Finally, he just says, you know what? That's it. I tried to bring you the gospel I wanted to see you guys saved from judgment to come, but you know what? That's it. I'm washing my hands now. I'm innocent of, of your blood. I gave you the truth. You've rejected it. I'm going to the Gentiles. And Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles anyways, but he never gave up that heart for Israel. So he says, I'm finished with you guys. That's it. Shaking the dust off. You know, real dramatic. You know how they can get. Shaking the clothes. Dust is off. I don't want anything to do with you guys. Where does he go? Goes next door right next door to the synagogue, and moves in with a guy. Wow, he really removed himself, didn't he? I mean, wow, Paul, you really showed them, right? You know, he loved these people. You know, he, he was frustrated with them. You know, you get frustrated with the people you love. You want to see them reach for the gospel, with the gospel so bad. You know, sometimes you get, but you know, you really, in your heart, you don't go very far because you want to see them saved. And that's where Paul was coming from. And so he departed from there, verse 7, Entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. This Justice, you know, back then it was uh, common for them to have two and even three names. We think that this Justice was also Gaius, because his name appears with Crispus here, verse 8. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So, you know, this was wise of Paul. He didn't stay in the synagogue where the Jews were persecuting him, unbelieving Jews. He goes next door to the house of justice, Gaius, and he's close enough to the synagogue where people know he's there. If there's any Jews or even Gentiles that have questions and want to talk more about Jesus, they know where to go, right next door, right? And they're getting saved. That must have really irked the unbelieving Jews, because here they see a steady flow of people 
You know how it is. You know, your, your congregation is dwindling. Where, where's everybody at? Oh, they're next door at uh, Justice's house. Paul's preaching over there, you know. And, and so it was really irking them more and more that he was so close and people were getting saved and coming over and, and listening to him. But, and, and many got baptized. And I want to have you just put your finger here and turn to Romans chapter 16. Because at the end of, uh, and remember now, Paul wrote the, Roman, the, the church at Rome from Corinth. And he says in verse 23, he says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, well, yeah, uh, the church was growing, greets you, and so on and so forth. But uh, he stayed at the house of Gaius when he was in Corinth. We think Gaius is justice. And it says that many believed and were baptized. And in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, it says in uh, verse 13, Paul is talking about how that people who had gotten saved under Peter's ministry and Apollos' ministry and, and so on and so forth, had been baptized by them, and they had formed these little groups and said, I'm of Peter, well, I'm of Apollos, that kind of thing. And Paul's coming down on that. He said, look, you know, uh, verse um, 12, he said, you know, each of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, except Crispus and Gaius, and lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name, and so on. So Paul purposely did not baptize many people, because he understood how people then tend to gravitate and become a little a little group and say, "Well, I'm a, I'm of Paul. Oh yeah, well I'm of Peter. You know that kind of thing." It was divisive. Verse nine says. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and said, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. By saying that the Lord was saying, I have many people that I'm working in their hearts, and Paul, through your ministry, they're going to receive me. They're going to come to me. So hang in there. Don't give up. I just think that at this point in Paul's life, as he said when he was reflecting back on this time, remember, he's writing to the Corinthians. He said, remember how I was with you? I was with you in much fear and trembling. This was a very immoral city. And you know how it is when you have very immoral, riotous, kind of raucous, tough, two-fisted sinners, okay? They don't take kindly to people coming in and talking about God oftentimes. And Paul was afraid. He was afraid for his life. He was afraid that the work was going to be, uh, you know, it was going to be thwarted. He was going to be beaten again. And he was afraid. You know, it's interesting that even the great apostle Paul got afraid. You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Some people think that to have real courage, you have no fear. I'm not so sure that's true. I think courage, though, is in spite of your fears, to do what God has told you to do. Yeah, I've been afraid a lot of times to do things that I know God wanted me to do. But by the grace of God, I said, Lord, that give me strength. And you just do it. It's tough, you know. I get afraid. And Paul got afraid. It's okay to be afraid. But don't let your fears control you. Don't let them take you out of the work of God. I knew a young guy who was really on fire for the Lord. He was really being used by God. Not a... He wasn't that old in the Lord, but he was really being used. And, 
his life had so dramatically changed that people were taking notice of him. And then the devil started to attack him, gave him some a series of uh, very frightening dreams and, and some other events. And he wound up just out of fear, he wound up turning his back on the Lord and just took off, just walked away from God. And he's not doing very well today, back in prison. Um, life is a mess. The, the devil comes like a roaring lion. But as somebody once said, he's a toothless lion. Let him roar all he wants. Jesus Christ has vanquished him. And he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. You keep your eyes on the Lord, like David did, and you'll be able to bring down giants just like he did. But if you get your eyes on those giants, believe me, you'll run in fear because what God calls us to do goes way beyond our abilities. And we have to draw our strength from him, keep our eyes on him. So verse 11, so he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. What a, what a needed thing this is today. Oh, teaching the word of God. You say, well, isn't that obvious? No, it isn't. Not today, at least. People, churches are not teaching the word of God. Oh, they all will claim they are, but they're really not teaching the whole counsel of God. They're not teaching it verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept. They're teaching things that, you know, they try to figure out what the congregation wants to hear, and then they'll do a message that will speak to a felt need or something like that. And that's a problem because people don't really get fed. If you're not going to give people the whole counsel of God, if you're going to only tell people what makes them happy or what they want to hear, how can they really grow? And so Paul stood there for a year and a half. So from roughly the fall of A.D. 50 to the spring of A.D. 52, he stood there in Corinth teaching them faithfully the word of God. When Galea was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. See, now, Galea was appointed proconsul somewhere near the end of A.D. 51. So the unbelieving Jews figured, hey, this guy might be sympathetic towards our cause. Let's bring Paul in on charges now. Let's drag him into court. Maybe this Galea will give us a, a break. Maybe he'll be sympathetic towards us. So uh, with one accord, they rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. They brought him into court, saying... This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Well, if they had only stopped to listen to what Paul was teaching, no doubt he would have told them, or maybe he did and they just weren't listening, that Paul wasn't teaching men to worship God contrary to the law. He was teaching men to worship God through the only one who could fulfill the law. Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And not one jot or tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. But the law is impossible for us to keep in our own strength. The only one who could keep it was Jesus. And if you want to worship God the way he wants to be worshipped, in the perfection of the law, you've got to do it in Christ, who perfectly kept the law of God in the smallest detail. And when I'm in Christ, God doesn't see me. He sees Jesus Christ. I'm accepted in the beloved one. Not in my own works, but in his work. And I can worship God now in spirit and in truth. And that's the whole idea. But they didn't understand that. They weren't ready to give up the rituals and all the Jewish ceremonies and things that they thought made them righteous before God. So they saw Paul as a, as a person who was a heretic. He was teaching a heresy, you know, a cult leader, whatever. And so when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said, to the, uh, to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, 
there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Now, Paul was about ready to defend himself. He's a Roman citizen. He has that right. Charges have just been brought against him. He's about ready to speak. And Galileo speaks for him. He says, look, if you had legitimate beef, if there was some crime that had been committed, I'd be happy to hear your case. But if it's a matter of religion, in Corinth, we're a free society. We have freedom of religion. I'm not going to be a judge in religious matters. You deal yourself. You know, this guy really upheld the separation of church and state, didn't he? You know, when that whole idea started in our country, it was to protect the church from the state. It was not to keep the church out of the state, but to keep the state out of the church. It's obvious our founding fathers did not want the kind of separation of church and state that we're hearing about today. I mean, it's totally obvious. Everywhere you look, there is God. Our nation was founded upon God. Get uh, Bill Federer's book, the, uh, the American Quotations of Our Founding Fathers, and you hear what kind of men they were. They were very godly men, most of them. This nation was founded upon God and upon the principles and the Word of God. And if there was the separation of church and state back then meant that the church was to have influence in government because you can't, a nation cannot exist and prosper and be blessed if God is kept out of it. Our founding fathers knew that, but they didn't want what they had in England where the state was messing with the church and telling them how they could worship and, and, and where they could worship and, and what liturgy they had to worship with and so on. That's why they came here. They didn't want the church out of the government. They wanted a government out of the church. Today, of course, it's been reversed. So that today you can't even, you, you can't even put a, you know, a, a, a nativity scene. Even if, even if a, a, a town wants it and all the people want it, the ACLU brings a lawsuit, gets it taken out and down. A few years ago they came against the city of Los Angeles because it was a, a very, very tiny cross on the, on the seal of the city. Oh, that's got to come off. You're, you're acknowledging one religion over another. Got to have separation of church and state. So they went to court, and before they even had a chance to sue them, the, the city uh, uh, backed down and, uh, and, and, and spent millions of dollars to take those little crosses off all their stationery and all the, uh, all the, um, on the police cars, the insignias, and the town seals and all, and it was ridiculous. We see it all the time. We're becoming a secular nation because we have people in the judiciary who feel that you know, they can meddle in the church anytime they want, but the church can have no say in government at all. That's sad, very sad. We see a pagan society has more religious freedom than we have, a Christian country. That's pretty pathetic. Verse 17, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat, but Galileo took no notice of these things. So, the Greeks that were standing there, probably upset with the Jews for whatever reason, decided to take their anger out on Sosthenes, who was now the new ruler. Remember now, the old ruler of the synagogue got saved. So now he's a Christian, so he's next door at church. So they need a new ruler of the synagogue. What is this ruler of the synagogue, by the way? It's just a person who made sure that the, the synagogue building was maintained. Everything was, that was needed for the synagogue service was, was going to be there for every service. Just he kind of oversaw things. And Sosthenes now was the new ruler of the synagogue. He was Jewish, of course. So 
the Greeks beat him up pretty bad. And somewhere along the line, if he's the same Sosthenes that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, he gets saved too. And maybe, after the Greeks beat him up pretty bad, the church next door comes over, washes his wounds like the jailer did to Paul and Silas and, uh, in the Philippian jail. And the love that God's people showed Sosthenes could have been the very thing that God used to then bring him to Christ. Love is a powerful thing. It's too bad sometimes when we see people who are going through difficult times who are unbelievers and we almost feel like, well, you're getting what you deserve. Because if you were like me, you were a Christian, then God would bless you. But you're only getting what you deserve. That's sad when Christians have that attitude. It's almost like, see, they're getting what they deserve. Instead of going over there and saying, how can I help you? What can I do for you? You know, showing the love of Christ. That's, that's what brings people to Christ. You know, they don't need you when things are going well. It's when things are going badly. That's when they need a Christian who will put their arm around them, not give them pious platitudes, the little sermonettes, but put their arm around them and, 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 and be with them and, and minister to them and help them. So, verse 18, Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren, sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, there are people that at this point really come down on Paul. What hypocrisy. Here he's telling the Jews that they don't need to follow the Jewish rituals anymore and all these other sacrifices and things and, and because it's all they're, they're free of those things in Christ, and yet here he takes a vow. And, of course, they believe that the vow he took was a Nazarite vow, which comes out of Numbers chapter 6. But you have to understand something. Paul did not do this to earn God's favor. He didn't do this to earn his salvation. He knew all that was free in Christ. He knew that sacrifices and things like that were, were, were not necessary for salvation. It was all in Christ. Jesus did it all. But he was Jewish. He grew up with these various things. And the Nazarite vow was a vow of consecration. The Mishnah said that you could take a Nazarite vow for 30, 60, or even 100 days, three different time periods. And if a person entered into a Nazarite vow, the way it worked was this. They would cut their hair at the beginning of the vow. It was a month or two months or 100 days, whatever it was. They cut their hair at the beginning. And now the entire time they were in this period where they had taken this vow, it was a time of consecration. It was a time of drawing close to God. Is there anything wrong with drawing close to God? Of course not. Paul was just going back to his roots. He had taken Nazarite vows many times, no doubt, when he was growing up and, and as, as a young rabbi and all. It was his way, and oftentimes these Nazarite vows were entered into as, as a way of thanking God for his provision or protection. God had just protected Paul in a very immoral city. And I think Paul wanted to say, thank you, Lord. He knew that this thing didn't earn him any points with God, but it was his way of saying, Lord, I love you. And I just want to just set aside this time to just draw close to you. Now, during this time, and you can read about this in number six because it gets into the whole thing, but they would cut their hair, and for the whole time they were taking this vow, they couldn't eat anything that came from the grapevine, nothing. They couldn't drink wine, vinegar, they couldn't eat the grapes, the raisins, the grape leaves. I mean, they couldn't have anything that came from the grapevine. And then after the vow was over, they would cut their hair again 
and take it down to the temple in Jerusalem and there offer it as, a burnt, as, a, uh, as an offering burned with fire, a peace offering, along with some other animal sacrifices. And it was just a way, it was, those animal sacrifices, by the way, were not uh, the sacrifices for sin or that, they were peace offerings, fellowship offerings. Again, it was a consecration thing. And that's all Paul was looking at it. But people get all up in arms and, oh, Paul is, what is he doing here? He's selling out. He's, he's you know, he's waffling, you know. And No, he's just, people say to me, what do you think about Lent? Is it wrong for a Christian to be involved in Lent? Now, when I was a, in the Catholic Church, Lent was that period from Ash Wednesday through, what, Good Friday or so, around that time where you denied yourself something and, and it was a way to get close to God and all of that. And so now as a Christian, is it wrong for us to do that? And I always tell them, look, it's never wrong to deny yourself something to draw close to God. Whatever you want to call it, doesn't, I don't care. If the heart is right, of course, if you're looking at these things to earn you favor with God, that's wrong. Because you can't purchase God's favor through anything you deny yourself from. But if it's a way of saying, Lord, for the next two weeks or two months or whatever... I'm going to give up television, and I'm just going to spend that time. I used to watch TV in the evening. I'm going to spend it in your word. I'm going to spend it with you. What's wrong with that? Why is that wrong? That's all Paul was doing. He was just saying, Lord, I'm going to set aside this time to thank you, to draw close to you. That's all it was. And so verse 19, and he came to Ephesus. Now, that was in Asia Minor. And left them there, but he himself enter the synagogue and reason with the Jews. Now, he's on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill this vow. Remember now, he's taken his Nazarite vow, and at the end of it, he's got to cut his hair again and offer it there at the temple. So he's got to work, he's got to get to Jerusalem. So on his way, though, he stops in Ephesus. And there he preaches in the synagogue, and he is so warmly received, and so many people respond, they want him to stay. He's like, I can't, but I promise I'll come back. I've got to get to Jerusalem. And so verse 20, when they had asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, probably the Passover, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, now obviously that was in Jerusalem. They always went up to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, they went down. Jerusalem was elevated pretty high, like 2,500 feet or so above sea level. But Jerusalem being the capital, of course, and the city of God, everything kind of, it was always considered, you know, you always went up to Jerusalem. So in verse 22, when Paul went up to visit the church, that was the church in Jerusalem, no doubt. And while he was there, he fulfilled his vow. And after that, he went down to Antioch which was his home church. In verse 23, after he had spent some time there, we don't know how long, maybe a year, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order. In order so he went back uh, along the way he had, you know, when he had planted churches in these areas in Asia Minor, he started to work his way back towards Ephesus. But along the way, he stopped and he was ministering there in Galatia, which is a region not a city, it's a region where a lot of these, Iconium and Lystra and the, those cities were in. Phrygia is a, is a region as well. And he went through these regions strengthening the brethren. 
Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Now here we go. Here we're introduced to a, another pretty well-known figure in the New Testament, Apollos. He's an interesting guy, by the way. First, it tells us that he came from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Alexandria was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. It was a phenomenal city. It was a, uh, the center of learning at that time. Uh, it was uh, founded and named after Alexander the Great. It boasted a university that had a library that contained about 700,000 volumes. I mean, the library at Alexandria at the university was the greatest in the ancient world. The city itself contained 600,000 people, population of 600,000, no small town. And it was a very cosmopolitan city made up of Egyptians and Jews and Greeks and Romans all living together. And the Jewish population numbered about 25%, so they were very influential, uh, pretty good voting block. So that's kind of the background. And Apollos comes from this city. It's an intellectual city, you know, a tremendous educational center. And here he comes, and he comes to Ephesus. And notice what, how he's described. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. The Greek is catechized. You know that some of you went to catechism classes when you were younger? Those classes were designed to, to, to teach you specifically the doctrines of your church. Well, somebody had set Apollos down and had catechized him, had really instructed him in the ways of the Lord. And he took that information, and he was fervent in spirit in delivering it. Notice what it says in verse 25. And so being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, that's interesting to me. Apollos was not a Christian. He only had limited information somehow some of john's disciples remember what john the baptist okay what was his ministry to go before the lord to go before the messiah and announce that messiah was coming messiah is coming repent get your hearts right open your hearts for, to receive messiah and so john had quite a ministry and some of john's disciples had left the area where John was ministering before Messiah ever came, before Jesus ever came on the scene, and finished the message that John began. John's message was repent. That's the beginning of the gospel. But then you have to repent, turn from your sin, and do what? Come to Christ. That's the second part of the gospel, which we would all agree is a very important element. So some of John's disciples who had followed him went to Alexandria, no doubt came across Apollos somehow, sat him down, and they instructed him uh, in, in the things that John was teaching. And so Apollos took this little information that he had, and with all of his heart, he began to preach. And you know what? If you are faithful with the light that God has given to you, God will always make sure you get enough light to be saved. Apollos was faithful with the light he had. He was a teachable man. He took the message of John that his disciples brought, and he took it with all of his heart and went out and began to preach. And so he's fervent. He's, he's dynamic, but he's only got a part of the message. And so he comes to Ephesus, and he's preaching his little heart out. 
And Aquila and Priscilla, who are converted by this time, we don't know if they were converted before they met Paul, but don't you know if they weren't and started working with him side by side and living with him? Well, that was all that took. And so they eventually, by this time, they're saved. So where are they? In church? In the Christian church? No doubt they went to church on Sunday, but where were they on Saturdays? In the synagogue. Why is that? Because they had a heart for their Jewish brethren. They had a heart to see people saved. So here they are in synagogue, seeing what kind of connections they can make, you know. And here comes Apollos preaching. And they're sitting there going, this guy's powerful, but he's only got a part of the message. So after he's finished, verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, they didn't approach him right there in the synagogue. They didn't stand up and embarrass the man. Let him finish, probably took him home, cooked him a meal, and began to tell him, look, you know, the message that you gave today, that was awesome. But there's a little more to the story that has happened since John was on the scene. We'd like to kind of fill you in on some of the details. And so, to his credit, he was a teachable man, powerful orator, Powerful in the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, but still teachable. If a person stops being teachable, I think they stop being usable. When a person thinks that they know everything and they can't be taught anything else, and I've seen people like this, you know, I mean, they're convinced that they're right. You try to sit down and say, well, but have you considered these scriptures? They won't hear it. They are convinced it, they're right. And you can't teach them, so they can't can't go any farther. But Apollos was not that way. And so they, they, Aquila and Priscilla took him on the side and began to uh, explain the way of God more accurately to him. And verse 27, and when he desired to cross to, okay, so now he, in, somewhere in the white space between verses 26 and 27, Apollos now gets the rest of the, he gets the full gospel now. He gets saved. And now, Wow. This guy is like a dynamo. I mean, you think he was powerful before he had the whole, the whole message. Now, wow, he is like a dynamo because now all the dots are connected. All the spaces have been filled in, and he, is, he knows it, and he's just a dynamo. And so verse 27 says, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, probably to go back to Corinth, because that's where Corinth was, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. He was so dynamic in Ephesus now, the church saw that this guy is dynamic. They sent letters of recommendation with him to the church at Corinth. And I, and I just imagine when Apollos rode into town, it was almost like the cavalry was coming. Because here he was, he was a dynamo, brilliant orator, and he came into town and he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, he helped the church, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, the unbelieving Jews, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And that's how you do it. you got to know the word. If you're going to refute people, and you got to do it in humility and love, but if you're going to do it, you've got to know the scriptures. You know, we've talk, been talking on Sundays about um, battling for truth. And last week we talked about some of the cults and false religions that have arisen uh, that are based on the same lie that the devil told Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we didn't get to 
all the groups, of course. We talked about Mormons and some others, but we, we know that there's also the Jehovah's Witnesses and things. They show up on your door, and, you know, and, and some Christians, you know, they want to attack. And a lot of Christians don't really know what these folks believe, and they don't even know how to defend what they believe. And so what they do is they attack these people, and they make a lot of accusations and things, and they, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. And so you know, you know what it does in the minds of those people? It confirms everything they were told, that they have the truth and you don't, because they know what's going on and you don't. You say, well, how do we deal with them then? You love them, bite them in, start asking them questions. Or if you work with them, sit down with them. Think about the lunch and just ask questions. And sincere questions. What do, you, what do you believe? What exactly did your group teach? Listen. Probe. Ask more questions. Show an interest. I can't, I, I've never met anybody yet who will not respond to somebody who is interested in what they have to say. And you begin to find out exactly where they're coming from. Then you take that information home and you pray and you ask God to show you why what, they're, what they believe is not accurate according to the Scriptures. And then you go back and lovingly begin to point out some of the flaws. You don't have to have all the answers. You can say, look, you know what? You've brought up a lot of good points. I don't have answers for all of them right now. I don't want to just give you a quick answer off the cuff. Let me go home. Let me search the scriptures. Let me pray a little bit and ask the Lord, and, and, and I'll get back to you. I think that they'll respect that. And they see that you're sincere and that you are interested in what they have to say. And who knows? They may be open to what you have to say. And I think that the dialogue is important. And so Apollos refuted them from the scriptures. Once in a while, I'll catch a program. Years ago, I remember I caught the Oprah Winfrey show. And she had, and I don't typically watch her show, but somebody called me and said some Christians were going to be on, some atheists or something, and they were going to, you know, or some atheists were going to be on, and they were going to be challenging Christianity or something. So I turned it on, and these mother and daughter who were into something, I neo-pagans or whatever they were and they're ripping apart the christian church and the bible and all of that and so now they oprah turns to the audience and and begins to to ask you know who wants to say something who wants to kind of you know refute some of this stuff and you should have heard the pathetic rebuttals i heard one person got up and said well you know you have to believe we just have to believe in something that's why you've got to believe the bible i'm thinking oh that's a powerful argument uh That'll convert a lot of people, you know, and just one pathetic answer after another until this one young woman stood up. She was filled with the Spirit, and she gave about a 30-second response that was so powerful. I thought, thank you, Lord, that somebody in the audience knows their Bible, and God used that. It was amazing because as soon as she got done, they panned quickly to the mother and daughter, and they were like speechless. The daughter looked at the mother like, Mom, say something. I mean, because she just totally blew them away. But you've got to know the Word. You've got to know the Scriptures. Be a student of the Word. No, you may not be an Apollos, but you can know the Word of God. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla educated Apollos. Uh, you don't have to be an Apollos to be a preacher, but you can, if you know the Word, you can be someone that can encourage and fill in the blanks and help somebody understand the faith even more, they might wind up becoming the next Billy Graham or the next D.L. Moody or whatever. So know the word.